Revelation chapter 3, let's begin reading together in verse 1. Let's read the word of the Lord together. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Lord, thank you for your presence. Thank you for the work that I believe you've already accomplished by your Spirit. Now I ask that you will be very present as we share together in the preaching of the word, that you will give us ears to hear not what the preacher is going to say, but what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching. I lift up other life-giving churches, and I pray blessing upon them. I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you, and I pray especially for sons and daughters once again who have wandered from the faith draw them back to you, Lord. Don't let one of them be lost. I thank you for hearing our prayer today. And I pray all of these things in the only name that matters, the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Over the last several weeks, I've been talking to you about the letters the Lord Jesus sent through the beloved elder, John, to seven churches in what we now know as Asia Minor. Each of these letters not only is a word from Jesus to those churches, but they also give insight to what the Lord would say to the modern church as well. When we looked at the church of Ephesus, we saw there the Orthodox Church. The church at Smyrna was the Suffering Church. The church at Pergamum was the compromising church. The church at Thyatira was the backslidden church. That brings us today to look at the church in the city of Sardis. Ancient Sardis was actually two cities. The original one was located high on a hill on an elevated plateau. The sides of the ridge surrounding the city were steep and smooth. There was only one approach to the city, and even that was hard and steep. The city of Sardis stood on top of this hill, positioned as an impregnable fortress. As the city grew, the plateau upon which it was located became too small. So Sardis then spread round the foot of this high hill on which the citadel stood. Ancient Sardis was a wealthy city. Through the lower town flowed the Pactolus River. Money was plentiful and gold and silver coins were mined and minted there. The people of Sardis were confident and comfortable because of their wealth and the position of their citadel city. 
At one point in history, the king of Sardis was feeling pretty important and wanted to extend his kingdom, so he engaged in battle with Cyrus of Persia. In that battle, he was soundly defeated, but he wasn't worried, for he thought all he had to do was retire to the citadel, regroup, and fight again. Cyrus, however, followed him back across the river, laid siege to the city. After about 14 days of that siege, he offered a reward to anyone who could find an entry into the city. By chance, one of the Persian soldiers had seen a Sardian soldier accidentally drop his helmet over the battlements and then make his way down the precipice to retrieve it. He knew from that observation there must be a crack in the face of the rock by which an agile man could climb up. That night, this soldier led a party of Persian troops up by the fault in the rock. When they reached the top, they found the battlements completely unguarded. The Sardians had thought themselves too safe to need a guard posted. And so Sardis fell. For two centuries, it vanished from history under Persian rule. In due time, it surrendered to Alexander the Great, and through him it became a city of Greek culture. After the death of Alexander, history repeated itself. Two men were principal rivals for power in that area. Archaeus sought refuge in Sardis, and Antiochus laid siege to Sardis for a year in an attempt to catch him. Then the same thing that had happened before was repeated. A band of soldiers climbed the steep cliff in the same place where it had been done years before. But the people of Sardis had forgotten the lesson. Once again, there was no guard on duty, and Sardis fell because it wasn't upon the watch. At the time of the writing of this letter from Jesus through the beloved elder John, Sardis was wealthy but degenerate. Even the once great citadel was now only an ancient monument on the hilltop. The once great Sardians were soft, and twice they had lost their city because they were too lazy to watch. Now, in this city of Sardis, there was a church. The Lord Jesus had been walking in the midst of the churches, and what he observed in them gave him reason to write this letter. It's a letter that not only speaks to this particular group of people in the first century, And not only speaks of historical events, but it's a letter that has something to say to you who are part of this worship service today. One thing is immediately apparent when you read all of the letters to the various churches. To each of the previous churches, the Lord Jesus finds something positive to say about them. Something that is commendable in them. Even though there may be problems in the church, the Lord writes a commendation to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira. However, that isn't the case here with Sardis. When you read this letter, you find that the Lord has nothing good to say about this church. In fact, he delivers one of the most scathing rebukes to this particular church. And as we work our way through this letter, there are four words I want to lift up for you that will organize our thoughts and help us understand what's going on in this church. At the same time, these four words will articulate the relevant message of this letter to where we find ourselves living today. Here we go. First word is reputation. In verse 1, the Lord Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. 
Looking in from the outside, everything seemed to be wonderful in this church. Everybody spoke well of the church at Sardis. This was a church that all the ministers of the denomination looked up and looked upon with envy, wishing they could be the pastor of this church. This was a church that was known in the church world as the church to attend. This was a church to which all the music groups from the denominational university wanted to travel. This was a church that hosted all the conferences. This was a church that was a beehive of activity, not only on Sunday, but all through the week as well. A church that was a hub of energy with programs and ministries. That was the reputation of this church. But then I want you to see the second word, the reality. Again, it's there in verse 1. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, and you are dead. The reality was that their reputation was superficial. The church at Sardis had an illustrious past, but now lethargy and comfortableness had settled in on them just like it had on the city. They attended worship, they sang the songs, they recited the prayers, they taught the lessons, but they were spiritually dead. The attendance was large and it was growing, but how many of you know that just because a church is full of people doesn't mean it's alive? The number of people shouting and rejoicing isn't the criteria the Lord uses to measure life. See, Sardis had a reputation of virility, but was full of vices. It's true that there were many groups working feverishly, but don't confuse busyness with life. The truth is you can be busy in the church and never even be saved. The church at Sardis wasn't having any problems, there wasn't any opposition, there wasn't any persecution, and there's a reason for that. You don't persecute dead churches. Satan has no interest in opposing and persecuting corpses. He wasn't against the church at Sardis because they were already dead. You see, it's one thing to have a name. It's quite another thing to have a name that is rooted in reality. Unfortunately, the problem isn't limited to Sardis. It's a relevant and prevalent problem today. See, there are dads who come to church and they stand and pray with the saints, but at home they are tyrants. There are moms who come to church and they work in the ladies' groups, but they're busybodies and gossips. There are teens who come to church and they sit in the seats like good little teens. They're raised in the church, they know all the right words to say, they know all the right motions to make, they know all that is expected, but none of the people who congratulate them on being such good boys and girls know what goes on behind closed doors. The church at Sardis had become like the city of Sardis, living on its past glory. Oh, sure, once they had been a great church. Once they had been movers and shakers, once they had been innovators, once they were on the cutting edge, but now all they're doing is trading on past reputation. Now all they're doing is living on past glory. Listen, it's easy to lose spiritual life and vitality and not even realize it's gone. When that happens, we start substituting motion for majesty. We start substituting pageantry for passion. We start substituting gimmicks for the genuine. We have the form, but we've lost the power. You know, I'm told that there are stars we can see in our night sky that are so far away, it takes years for the light of that star to reach the earth. 
I read about one recently that it takes 33 years for the light of that star to reach earth. You know what that means? It means that if this particular star went out tonight, it would be another 33 years before we would miss it. It would have a name that it is alive, but it's dead. Have you ever heard the expression running around like a chicken with his head chopped off? If you didn't grow up on a farm or if you haven't had some of these agricultural experiences, you're going to think I'm making this up. But I want to tell you, if you want to kill a chicken, you don't chop off its head. You wring its neck. See, if you chop off its head, that chicken will continue to flop around and perhaps even run around for a time. And to the outside observer, you might think it's super chicken. He's still moving, he's still shaking, he's still running around, but he's detached from his head and he's dead. He doesn't look dead, he doesn't act dead, but he's dead, he just doesn't know it yet. I want to tell you, that's the way it is with some churches. They have all the programs, they have all the trappings, but they're dead. That's the danger we face. I'm not just talking about the church out there, I'm talking about us. Them out there are not hearing this message. It's you. And I'll tell you something else. That's the way it is with some people. They still do religious things. They go to religious places. They say religious things. They perform religious rituals, and they're involved in religious programs, but they're dead. Some of them are serving on church boards. Some of them are singing in the choir. Some of them are even preaching in the pulpit, but they're dead. One of the ways you can tell they're dead is by observing how they respond when real life comes into the room. When the power of the Holy Spirit blows into the room, when the fire of the Spirit begins to burn, when the creative energy of the Spirit begins to do something fresh and new, those who are dead immediately want to resist. They want to push back on that. They just want things to settle down and return to what they've always known. Listen, it's easy to get comfortable with where we are. It's easy to develop a false sense of security and think that nothing can get to us. What you need to know is that Jesus wants you to have confidence, but not cockiness. Do you know when a church dies? It dies when it gets used to its blessings and starts to take those blessings for granted. It dies when it gets complacent, when it becomes at ease in Zion. A church dies when it has motion, but the motions are no longer meaningful. A church dies when it becomes more concerned about social ills than saving souls. A church dies when it becomes more concerned about the organization than the organism. A church dies when it gets more involved with politics and hot-button issues of the day than it is with the eternal destiny of the people of this world. And you can tell there's spiritual death in the church when we begin to worship tradition. There's spiritual death in the church when we have a greater concern with form than with force. There's spiritual death in the church when we have greater love for a good name than we have a love for Jesus. There's spiritual death in the church when we are inflexible and resistant to change. You know, we can't change the order of service. We can't change the time of service. We can't change where we're going to sit in the service. When we're more resistant to change than we are uh, and, and we're inflexible. There is spiritual death in the church when there's a loss of evangelistic and missionary fervor. The greatest contributor 
to spiritual death is not persecution or opposition or heresy or false doctrine. The biggest contributor to spiritual death is ease, comfort, plenty. See, when there is no want, we forget to pray, give us this day our daily bread. When there is no struggle, we forget to pray, lead us not into temptation. When there is no battle, we forget to pray, deliver us from evil. I continue to be challenged by something I read many years ago by George Matheson. He was a blind preacher of Scotland of of previous generations. He wrote, my God... I have never thanked thee for my thorn. I've thanked thee a thousand times for my roses, but never once for my thorn. I have been looking forward to a world where I shall get compensation for my cross, instead of recognizing it as itself a present glory. He went on and wrote, teach me the glory of my cross. Teach me the value of my thorn. Show me that I have climbed to thee by the path of pain. Show me that my tears have made my rainbow. You see, it's the tough times that build strength. It's the tough times that build character. It's the tough times that build endurance and faith and trust. I want to tell you, only in the valley can you discover that Jesus is the lily of the valley. Only in the lion's den can you see him send an angel to shut the mouth of the lions. Only in the fiery furnace can you walk with the fourth man like the Son of God. Only when you come through the refiner's fire can you be presented as pure gold. Only when you wrestle all night can you experience the touch of God and then receive the blessing of God on your life. Instead of removing the mountain, it's when you climb the mountain that you can then be hidden in the cleft of the rock and you can see the glory of the Lord as he passes by it's when you come up against tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword and death and life and angels and principalities and things present and things to come and powers and height and depth and every other created thing. That's when you are able to receive the ability to overwhelmingly conquer through the power of Jesus Christ at work within you. Do you, do you remember the story of Samson? Remember what happened after he told Delilah all that was in his heart about his Nazarite vow? Remember how she had the barber come in and cut his hair? Remember how she then awakened him and said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Remember what happened next? The Bible says he arose and shook himself and said, I shall go out as at other times. And here's the tragedy. It says he knew not that the spirit had departed. Understand something. The problem wasn't the haircut. That was only the external manifestation of the real problem. The reason Samson lost his strength was because he was no longer connected to God who was the source of that strength. He didn't realize he was no longer connected and that's the problem with a lot of people in the church. They have all the trappings but they don't know the spirit has departed. While they're lost in this fantasy world of how it used to be. God has already moved on doing something new and creative and powerful. 
There's a reputation and the reality. Now, aren't you glad that you worship real strong right on the front end of this service? Then there's third, there's a remedy I want you to see. In verses 2 and 3, there are five imperative verbs, and these verbs give us a formula for revival. Remember, a revival isn't a series of meetings. A revival isn't a guest speaker and special music. To revive is to bring back to life something. A revival is resurrecting something that is dead. A revival is breathing new life into something that once was living, but it stopped breathing. Sardis was a dead church. Sardis was a morgue with a steeple. The people who made up that church, and too often those who make up the modern church as well, are little more than dead men walking. But to the people who make up the church in every age, Jesus gives a formula for revival, and it's in these five imperative verbs. Number one, watch. Some translations say, wake up. It's the same idea. Don't go to sleep on guard duty. Don't leave the wall untended. Just because you feel secure, just because you aren't having any difficulty right now, don't relax your watchfulness. Wake up. Recognize what's going on. Stop being careless about Jesus and about your relationship with him. The warning from the prophet in Amos 6 and 1 is still relevant when he says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. I want to tell you, if ever there was a day and time in which we need to be alert, it is now. While followers of Jesus slumber and sleep secure in their concerns and their cocoons of blessings and fellowship, there is an encroachment by the enemy upon our families, upon our faith, upon our freedoms, and upon the very moral fiber of our country. It is incumbent upon believers to watch out and to resist the forces in the marketplace that call evil good and call good evil. This is the message of 1 Peter 5 and 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's the message of Romans 13 and 11. And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. First word is watch. Second verb, strengthen. Strengthen the things that remain. The word to dead saints is come alive. The word to those saints who are alive is get stronger. Strengthen what remains. See, there's always room for improvement, whether it's in understanding the work of the Spirit or in understanding how to be a better father and husband or wife and mother or in understanding how to be a more effective witness. Strengthen strengthen your commitment to God's Word. Strengthen your commitment to the fellowship of the saints. Strengthen your commitment to attendance at the times of worship. Strengthen your commitment to the foundations of the faith. Things like the virgin birth, the sinless life, the atoning death, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Things like Jesus is the only way to salvation. Things like we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. Strengthen your commitment. Strengthen your commitment to lead your household to serve the Lord. Strengthen your commitment to love the least and the last and the lost. Strengthen the things that remain. Give attention to them. Third verb, remember. It's in verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. 
That verb, like all of the others before, it literally means to keep on remembering. <clears throat> keep on remembering. Some of you need to remember what it was like when you were walking close to the Heavenly Father. Some of you need to remember how it felt when you first knew your sins were forgiven. Sometimes we need a refresher course in the economics of our salvation. Sometimes we need to take a return trip to Calvary. We need to remember the cost of our salvation. Maybe when we see the great price that was paid for our soul, we won't be so careless with the way we treat our salvation. We need to remember the value so that we guard it more carefully. That's why in just a little bit before the end of this service, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. It's to remember we remember the blood spilled to cleanse us from sin, to buy us back from the prison house of sin slavery. We remember the stripes on his back to secure our healing. We remember the broken body so we could be whole. We remember he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was punished for our peace. And by his stripes we are healed. Remember, 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 remember what it was like for the glory of God to fill the house. Remember what it's like for the presence of God to be so strong you could hardly stand. Remember what it was like for the power of God to literally shake the room. Remember what it was like for the conviction of the Holy Spirit to be so strong that before an invitation was given, would, people would literally run to an altar for prayer. Remember what it was like for the miracle life of God to work in the maimed and the wounded and those that were broken. Remember what it was like for the deliverance of God to set captives free. Remember the great works of God. Remember the prayers that God has answered for you. Remember the way the Lord has provided for your needs. Remember, 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 and keep on remembering. You watch, you strengthen, you remember. Fourth one, keep. Other translations will say hold fast. It literally means to keep on keeping. Persevere, endure, stay in the battle. Don't give up. Don't just be a starter. Anybody can start. Don't just live on past glory. Keep going. Press on. Listen, you can't lose if you won't quit. Fifth verb, repent. And the verb tense means do it now. Don't wait. Stop in your tracks and get right with God before you take another step. Make an immediate change. Turn around. Come back to him. This is such a strong imperative that it doesn't mean for you to wait until this message is completed. It doesn't mean to wait until an invitation is given for you to come forward. It doesn't mean, mean for you to wait until you get home and think about it some more. It means right now, repent. Some of you have been going through the motions. You're fooling everybody around you, but you're not fooling God. He's calling for you to get right and do it now. In verse 3, he gives a warning that would have special significance in light of the history of this city. He says, if therefore you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. Repent. Y'all doing all right? Okay. I'm almost done. I thought I'd get a better praise God for that, but okay. We've looked at the reputation, the reality, and the remedy. Finally, I want you to see the reward. Beginning in verse 4, the Lord says that there are a few, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. Garments here has reference to character. There are a few in Sardis who are not dead, 
There are a few who haven't succumbed to the lethargy and the complacency. <clears throat> to those who get right and stay right, the Lord promises three rewards. First, verse 5, he, overcome, he who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. That white garment represents festivity. It speaks of victory and purity. It represents glory. And the promise of God to those who will wake up, to those who will come alive again by the Spirit, to those who will overcome the complacency and the lethargy of this age, He promises rejoicing and victory and purity and glory. If you'll overcome, He says, you'll wear a white garment. And I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but the garments we're going to be wearing at the marriage supper of the Lamb, they're white garments. These are wedding garments. They aren't soiled. They aren't tattered. And while this earth is in the most horrible, incredible upheaval it has ever known, those who overcome are going to be sitting down at the marriage supper. We're going to be wearing white garments because it's going to be a time of rejoicing. It's going to be a time of celebrating our victory. It's going to be a glorious time of celebrating our purity because we've been washed in the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. That's, that's in your future. Second, to him who overcomes, the Lord promises in verse 5, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. It's a promise of place in eternity with the Lord. You know, in the ancient world, a, a king kept a register of all the citizens, much like a census. It, it, it was a big registry book. But anytime a man committed a crime against the state, they would go through all the record books and they would remove any reference to that name. To that man, they would, they would take his name out. They would remove his name from all the documents kept in the royal records. But the Lord says to those who overcome, I won't blot out your name. I won't erase your name. Instead, he says, you'll have your name written down in the book of life. To have your name written in the book of life is to be numbered among the faithful citizens of the kingdom of God. That's also in your future. Finally, to those who overcome, the Lord promises in verse 5, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Think about that for a moment. Jesus promises to personally announce your name before the heavenly father and before his angels. It's a personal introduction. Think about walking through the gates, and the Lord Jesus says, here comes John V. Morgan. I, I am planning to make it in case you were wondering. <laughs> Father, let me introduce him to you. Angels, here he is. That obviously doesn't bless you like it does me, so I'll move on. See, you may be known to presidents and potentates. You may, you may be known by kings and bishops. You may be listed in the Fortune 500. You may be listed on the elite social registers. Your name may be blazed across the marquee for the public's adoration. You may have access to palaces and to hideaway estates. But there is no privilege afforded any on this earth that can compare with being known by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and having Him announce you to the God of this universe. 
Jesus said, if you will not deny him, if you would confess him before men, he would confess you before the Father. And when he does, he will confess that you are not dead. You are indeed alive. You've been made alive through his precious blood. You've been made alive through the work of his spirit. You've been made alive through faith in his name and by his immeasurable grace. That's his promise today. It's made to all who overcome. And then he finishes up and says, pay attention. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. Bow with me, please.